welcome to another episode of Scuttlebutt, an MCA podcast. I'm Nick. I'm here with Vic. Hello. And Will. Howdy. And we have a spy on us today, but we don't need to talk about Sarah. Look for that article coming out in March of Leatherneck. Uh, we got a real fun one today with Professor Hunsaker, a close friend of the show. Vic, how do you know? Yeah, so um, Mike actually came t- uh, to my platoon or to my company uh, back in uh, 2001. Uh, we touched on that a little bit in the interview. But uh, yeah, he literally came to our uh, to our company in September of two thousand one, like September is after Labor Day, um, and took over my platoon. I plussed up to be the XO of the company. Uh, he took my platoon, and then next thing we know, uh, we're at war. And so I always joke around that um, it's because Al Qaeda knew that he would come to our platoon, so it's his <laughs> fault for nine eleven. <laughs> But um, I don't know, William, what did you think about it? You guys come from the same uh, same school. Yeah, unfortunately, I'd never had uh, Dr. Hunziker as one of my courses. I mean, and that's surprising considering the fact that I took a lot of almost every military uh, history course I could have taken at uh, George Mason University. But this is one of the favorite interviews I think uh, I've listened to so far that we've done. Uh, especially because, I mean, if, if I could put, you know, on my resume, like for hobbies, just put like World War One history as a section uh, if I could get away with that, I absolutely would. And he makes a lot of uh, great points, especially how we should really reframe. You know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And I think there's <laughs> nice. a lot of rhymes going on between, you know, pre-World War One and what we're experiencing today. And uh, a lot of uh, my, one of my favorite points he brings up, you know, is, uh, you know, studying losers in, in conflicts, you know, to understand like what they did well, what they did wrong and how to either replicate or d- uh, deter against it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's 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 uh, true. It's truly an incredible era, era to study. There's a lot of stereotypes of it that I love breaking down. I actually had one of my friends over. Uh, he came over around midnight to hang out. We ended up start watching a uh, uh, a World War One documentary that the BBC produced uh, based off of Hugh Strachan's uh, World War One book. And it's it was just you know the a lot of similarities between now and then is incredible, especially in the Marine Corps Gazette. We've seen a lot of articles recently. One especially touched on, you know, how the great power competition between Germany, Russia, Britain, and France is uh, very similar to what we're experiencing between India, China, and the United States. Yeah, I, I, I know for me, uh, delving into this, especially, you know, through uh, the lens of uh, Dr. Hunziker, was that um, you do get caught up in this, like, idea of modern day exceptionalism it's like exactly. well we're modern how could there's nothing in the past that can resonate today because we're just so far ahead of where they are and that is so untrue and if, that is the same yeah. that's a thought mistake every like third generation yeah, makes. for sure oh I all mean, the way back to the renaissance like it's it's crazy if i've learned anything in the past two years is that we are as dumb <laughs> as, as a species <laughs> that's, the, that's the reoccurring thing as, as all just idiots as we've all as we've always been we, we never truly learn we try to learn but i mean the problems that um that they faced are still around today and that it's 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 hard to learn lessons when you haven't experienced them until you've experienced them yourselves and unfortunately as a species we tend to forget some of those lessons yeah no genetic memory here um that's a Dune reference, by the way. What was that? Genetic memory. Yo, oh, dude, Dune. Anyways, that's a that's a nerd series we'll run later <laughs> on. We can unpack Dune. Do we have the capacity in Scuttlebutt to review Denis Villeneuve's Dune? Probably not. Maybe not talk about the <laughs> sequel. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, go on. So, so what else? Um, you know, because uh, like I said, this is um, definitely in your wheelhouse. 
Oh yeah, it's especially also in terms of uh, innovation. I, I think that uh, Hunziker brings up, you know, learning, uh, learning from the civilian field and learning, uh, especially because I mean, look at World War One. A lot of like those uh, those innovations that were made were uh, started out originally as civilian projects. I mean, tanks were essentially tractors that you just you yeah. know that were at one point plowing fields and the next yeah. next time you know you're just throwing some uh throwing some armor on machine guns cannons on and uh going it and there's i mean essentially uh a lot of the stereotypes you know that you have of world war one especially on the western front that uh, uh we have over here uh mike hunziker's uh book dying to learn uh wartime lessons from the western front so it's a very I, I, after perusing this book for two seconds i am fully ready to do the full dive in nice. and, and read page to page but uh essentially just like there, there's there's a lot more uh than the stereotypes you have of you know lions leading lambs to the slaughter on the western front there's a lot of innovation there's a lot of yeah you know, at that time when, when success is measured in in kilometers instead of you know dozens or tens of or even hundreds of kilometers it, it, you have to understand like the amount of effort and, and research and innovation it took to get there and then also realize at the same time that uh, it was applied to a great degree and, and successful in many ways. Yeah, and, and we definitely tend to, um, and you mentioned it earlier, we, we tend to be uh, you know a, a merit-based culture. And so we look at it like, oh, if it's a stalemate or if they lost, then they clearly – like the entire bundle is that they were screwed up. And that's 100%, I think, what Dr. Hunziker is trying to show here is that it's 100% not the case. Yeah, and that kind of even, if you want to just kind of jump ships metaphorically over here to ongoing right now is the World Chess Championships. There hasn't been a non-draw in primary competition in five years there because they've got it so figured out. No way, that's it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, and it's just kind of, yeah, it's just, they've, it's almost a solved game at this point. <laughs> and one of, one of the favorite things I think that uh, came up in the interview you talk about is essentially how uh, a lot of World War One leaders completely ignored the lessons of the American Civil War. Right, right. And especially if, in, in, in if you look at it, I mean, you could a lot of historians have argued, and I think I might throw my lot into there that uh, the American Civil War is really one of the true first modern wars in the sense where you could m get a mass mobilized population into combat very quickly quicker than almost any other right. generation had and, well, the, and the, correct me if i'm wrong but even the later battlefields of the civil war looked a lot like the battlefields oh, on the western oh, front like trenches on, on top of that guns, yeah well yeah uh, sapping exactly uh, i mean yeah. trench warfare um defenses in depth you have in essentially you know their, their cannons operated as you know the the machine guns did you know having know cross fields of fire mm -hmm. and having your distances pre-planned out perfectly before i mean like it, it looked very similar but a lot of europeans overlooked that because those are the yanks it, yeah, exactly if i'm um, wrong here but wasn't there a thing where there was europeans observing the civil war mm -hmm. and they For decided sure. that, oh, absolutely they decided that all this technology and stuff we were developing and tactics and things were as a result of our incompetence not because of Ingenuity, ingenuity, or anything. And like on, that. on top of that, also they've the wars most by mo sorry wars by most European powers at this point were fought by professional armies that had like a certain standard in training that didn't happen in in the United States in the Confederacy in that time just by the very nature of the armies. Uh, in like, but the, you start seeing them like how they how essentially you get all these untrained masses, uh, armed, supplied, trained, and get them together to be become a fighting force. 
is something that was almost uh, forgotten too, especially when you see the issue happen in World War One with the Somme with like Kitcher's army, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. I mean, so yeah, great, great points are brought up. I, I love this interview, and I think yeah, and he talks about too, like how they're like the, the if nothing else, you can migrate the processes. Like so, even if you were just staunch that there's no parallels in the actual war fighting itself, the processes and the planning and, and the command structures and all those things are definitely translatable. And he talks a little bit about that with the act theory, uh, which, you know, obviously I don't want to speak for him. He speaks much better about it since his book is predicated on it. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, it's that, it's, it's, it's that, it's that cycle. It's that decision-making um, apparatus and that culture of, we talk about this with um, Andy Milburn is the, you know, the intellectual curiosity. Right. And Andy Milburn is coming up in January. Right. Um, but his article hits uh, the shelves here in a little bit. But anyways. All right. Yeah. So, all right. Now, there's a lot to unpack on World War One, and we've barely touched it, and we don't really have plans to touch on it in the near future. But if you, the listener, want to hear more World War One stuff, just let us know. Say, hey. We can deliver. Be, it would be pretty cool. Just if you guys talked about World War One, and then Will over here will be like, hey, guys. I got you, fam. Yeah, let's pump, do this. <laughs> take, take my gloves off. Crack my knuckles. <laughs> so, all right. Well, without further ado, here is Vic and Professor Mike Hunziger. I want to welcome everyone. Um, I am Vic, as always, and I'm here. I'm very honored to have a uh, distinguished scholar and a very close friend of mine, uh, Dr. Michael Hunziger. And um, as you heard, he is a former Marine, Amtracker, uh, combat veteran, has been, has cut his teeth in the uh, resident school world uh, and the um, academic civilian world as well, obviously. And he recently published a book called Dying to Learn, Wartime Lessons from the Western Front. So, hey man, thanks for being here. It's my pleasure, it's great to see you again. Yeah, yeah, it's really, it's been too long, absolutely too long, but um, so yeah, if you wouldn't mind, uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself, um, take as much time or be as brief as you want, but if you could just sort of give us a little bit of your background, um, where you came from, what your time was like in the core, what your time was like transitioning, and then where you are now. Sure, I'd be happy to, and I'll try to keep it brief because it's fairly inconsequential background. But yeah, so I joined the Marine Corps in 2000, right out of college, and I served on active duty from 2000 to 2006, which was, with the benefit of hindsight, a really unique opportunity to sort of see the pre-9-11 Marine Corps, then the pre-Global War on Terror Marine Corps, and then kind of experience the invasion of Iraq, uh, the early reconstruction mission, and then train young officers. So after my obligatory stint at TBS 2000, early 2001, went over to the West Coast, actually picked up my first platoon. What was it? Because uh, Vic happened to be my XO. Maybe yeah. week two before. Second platoon uh, Alpha Company, baby. Hey, we still blame you for 9-11, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> second platoon, second to none, except for first and third platoon. But no, I remember our, our battalion commander, uh, Colonel Abbott, told us in his change of command ceremony, every unit he ever led went to combat. And we sort of snickered at him because, you know, that's not something we do anymore, we thought in the early 2000s. That's hubris for you. But, yeah, so there it was. Uh, 9-11 happened. Uh, put on my brown pants because it's not what I was expecting to be doing in my time in the Marine Corps. I uh, went to Okinawa with Vic and the rest of Alpha Company 3rd Tracks in early 2002. Spent six months there. Came home. 
turned around, re-geared, reorganized, went to Iraq for the invasion, came back, re-geared, reorganized, went back to Iraq again as part of OIF 2 TAC Alpha, I think it was, before they renumbered them all. And then spent my last two years in the Marine Corps with training command, training new AAV officers. And so it was an exciting experience. Uh, but in 2006, really wanted to go to graduate school. And maybe we can get into this later because I think it's an interesting and important evolution in the Marine Corps' development. But in 2006, there just there really were no civilian graduate education opportunities for officers. I remember asking my monitor if I could take a two-year leave of absence because I was lucky enough to get into a fully funded master's program. And there was a long pause followed by laughter. <laughs> which gave me my answer. So I knew I had to turn in papers. I dropped papers. I got out on a Thursday and I showed up at graduate school on a Monday. It was quite the transition. It took me like six months to stop shaving, another six months to start untucking my shirt, but I adapted to all things. I spent about nine years at Princeton in total. Uh, my wife says I got lost there, but I did a master's and then did a PhD and then did a postdoc. Spent most of my time working under a scholar there named Aaron Friedberg, who's been one of the sort of the leading scholars and analysts in thinking about long-term competition with China. And from there sort of got my start into thinking about military innovation, military adaptation and deterrence, which is mostly what I work on these days. Anyway, uh, since that time, I left Princeton at 2015, went over to George Mason University, where I'm now an assistant professor. I also am the associate director of our Center for Security Policy Studies, and I'm a newly minted non-resident fellow for the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. Uh, I primarily these days work on deterrence. I do a lot of work on cross-strait relations, cross-strait deterrence. Uh, but the book that we're going to be talking about today, this is my 11-year uh, labor of love. I've been working on it since 2010. It was originally my dissertation, and that focuses on how military organizations learn, and, and I think it's an important and timely question. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, before we get into your book, though, um, I wonder if you could help us, because I think we're in an interesting time where not only is your book relevant, uh, but I think just perspective, especially from that mental management standpoint, like what are young Marines uh, officer and enlisted who are in maybe their first tour or get maybe transitioning to a B billet? What are they thinking? What, how should they be looking at this current time of de-escalation, but yet simultaneous uh, escalation of deterrence? So if you could, could you just give us a little bit of your perspective looking back at 9-11? Like you talked about, like when we came in, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I mean, it was Clinton era, man. Like the superstars were the muse. And if you were lucky, you might, well, I hate to say lucky, but if you were looking for that adventure and excitement, you might get a non, you know, non-combatant humanitarian operation or something along those lines or East Timor, you know, maybe you're a Terry Postenbaugh and you actually get to get boots on the ground in Kosovo, um, but nothing to the scale to which we imagined we were going to be in post 9-11. So through the lens that you have now, looking back, like what are some of your thoughts about pre 9-11 and then 9-12? Like, what was that like for you? No, it's, it's, it's a terrific question. I think a very, you know, accurate parallel. I, I mean, for me, quite literally, 9-11 was a put on your brown pants moment because not only had I just taken over a platoon and so like many second lieutenants really secretly wondering, was I, was I ready for this? Yeah, uh, wait, wait, real quick, you hit, you hit the fleet at like September 2nd or something, right? Yeah, no, no, quite. Quite literally, I graduated from track school. Uh, I remember you and Captain Wiggers, my company commander, had 
came over to my graduation and you informed me we were going to go to CAX within like a month. And I was terrified. The thought of going for three full weeks, 29 Palms, just <laughs> seemed an insurmountable mountain. And between graduation and 29 Palms was 9-11. And I just, you know, remember staring at the Marines thinking like, this is, I knew I had the training, but this conceptually was not what I was ready for. And quickly we got ready. That's what the Marine Corps is good at. That's uh, why it exists in an institution with the institutional memory it has. But I think that the cognitive shock that I, and you know, I don't put words in your mouth, but probably you and every other Marine Corps officer on active duty, almost all of us who came of age in the 90s, uh, I do recall you know, walking around right before I got out as a young captain and I'd run into colonels who really hadn't been to Iraq yet and I would have more medals than they would. And it, was, it really spoke to sort of the deployment pace, what tip of the spear looked like in the 90s versus in the early 2000s. I think that is very similar to how young and mid-career officers today should be thinking. Uh, I to put too fine a point on it. And this stuff keeps me up at night. Sometimes it wakes me up in the middle of the night. I'm not talking about my experiences in Iraq. I'm talking about what I worry the next war is going to look like. Uh, I think 9-11, you know, the next war, if it happens, hopefully deterrence prevails and it won't happen. But deterrence is more likely to prevail the more we're thinking in worst case scenarios. Uh, you know, if another war happens, it's not going to look like 9-11. It's, it's, it's not going to look like Korea. I really genuinely do think we need to be thinking in terms of the First World War and the Second World War. And one of the reasons I think young officers should read a lot about the First World War, because there are so many profound parallels between now and July of 1914. Uh, and if you read about it, you think about it, if you were an officer joining the military in July of 1914, uh, you probably you saw the storm clouds gathering, but you had no idea what it would look like, because the only experiences you had were probably reading PME journals, and they had them back then, about the Boer War or the Russo-Japanese War, right? These little bushfires we now know in history. And I'm sorry to say, I'm pretty confident that history looking back on us 100 years from now is gonna see 9-11, GWAT, Iraq, Afghanistan as being bushfires. And they're only gonna give us a tiny little pinhole view of the true magnitude, uh, magnitude of a collision between nuclear great powers. I think that should obviously induce a great deal of humility, but I think for young officers actually puts you in a very interesting position because kind of like, uh, civilians told the generals at the end of the Second World War, and the generals like, civilians, you don't know how war works. Civilians would respond, in general, I fought as many nuclear wars as you have. <laughs> yeah. The fact of the matter is, if you're a general today, you have cut your teeth into your entirety in a war on terror. And that's not what the next war is going to look like. And I think young officers and mid-career officers have the flexibility and mindset that haven't yet kind of been brainwashed into a certain way of doing business, that they can contribute to these discussions in important ways because they fought just as many wars against potential great power rivals as anybody on active duty today. Oh, that's awesome. That's a great insight. And that's also a really good lead into your book. So uh, Dying to Learn, Wartime Lessons from the Western Front. Um, I think, like you said, I would have never have having not, you know, you just, I think there's a certain sense of um, elitism when it comes to looking at periods of history, especially uh, you know, far removed, you know, over a hundred years ago, what can they really, you know, it's trench warfare. It's, uh, it's a slugfest and it's Europe. Like what can that really give us, uh, for today? And, and so I really hadn't thought about some of the things that you talk about in this book as being relevant, um, to the current era. So I guess, could you briefly, and I know obviously you spend your entire book on this, but you briefly explain a little bit about act theory, what it is, and what your book is trying to show us by looking at World War One, by say more modern, or at least from a you know technological standpoint, something that would be more relevant or more um, appetizing 
for uh, uh, this current era? Yeah, terrific question. And it, it is, I, I'm often asked, like, what, why should we study the First World War, right? Isn't this the epitome of futility, uh, stagnation, idiocy, trying the same thing over and over again and hoping for a different outcome? And that is how most of us learned about the First World War. Uh, it is historically incorrect. And actually, historians have been struggling for the better part of many decades now, especially because of recent, well, my recent, I mean, 1960s declassification of, of, of certain documents in the archives. We really know so much more about the First World War, but that old narrative just sticks in the mind. It's reproduced in history textbooks. And so it just leads us to a mistaken view of what really happened, especially on the Western Front. And we tend to, therefore, associate the lack of movement with the lack of learning. And historians have now uncovered pretty decisively, I don't think there's much debate anymore, the First World War was the birthplace of modern warfare. Most of us as young Marines learned, you know, Blitzkrieg warfare, maneuver warfare, battlefields of the Second World War. That's where it was perfected, but it was first learned and mastered uh, on the Western Front. So I think that there's, there's just an important false narrative out there that we need to dispel if we really want to be honest about learning lessons from history. I also really like your point about what, you, what can we learn from the past because, you know, they were silly. They wore funny hats. And, <laughs> yeah pants. And I hate to tell millennial officers today, I promise you in about 20 years, people are going to look at the pants you're wearing right now and be like, they wore silly pants. What could we possibly learn from them? The fact of the matter is uh, human beings have been making the same kinds of mistakes cyclically for basically all of human history. Uh, there is a quote that I absolutely love, and I try to use it as often as possible from John Lennox. I think he's a theologian and mathematician from Oxford. And he says, new things are just old things happening to new people. So, <laughs> Is this the first time we've ever seen AI, directed energy, big data, you know, all these other things? Yes. Is this the first time human beings and complex societies have had to wrestle with revolutionary technologies that have fundamentally displaced how we have done business? No. And in fact, the most recent example of this is right just before the First World War. Uh, another gentleman, scholar, former uh, Air Force officer, Colonel Tom Earhart, Dr. Tom Earhart, who I really, I invite him to speak to my classes. I think everybody should read his stuff. Shameless plug here for one of his articles. I think every Marine officer should read called Pathologies of Victory. Uh, but right, he was the one who actually taught me that the Luddite movement, you know, when you and I hear Luddite, we just think somebody who rejects technology. Actually, it was a violent revolutionary movement against the rise of, of the machines, what we would call them now, the beginning of the industrial age. And what they were really revolting against was this idea that machines were robbing human beings of the one thing that was uniquely human, which is our physical labor. That machines were doing things that humans ought to be doing. And we can think in analogous terms to what's happening today because, well, machines are now coming again for the one thing we really do think is uniquely human, which is the way we think. And nobody would have thought that possible, but I think we're seeing very similar like Luddite-like movements. So. These types of revolutions have happened in the past. They're gonna happen again in the future. I think the most recent one for military officers to study occurred in the 20, 30, 40 years prior to the First World War. And in particular, I argue there are three just profound parallels that I think should we should pause and think about. Uh, certainly if you're gonna reject the analogy I'm trying to offer, uh, but parallels between the late 19th, early 20th century and today. The first is that the First World War came on the heels of just this insane period of rapid technological innovation, change, and disruption. Internal combustion machines, interchangeable parts, the railway, rapid communications, first with the telegraph, then with the radio, smokeless powder, obviously breech-loading weapons, hydraulics, which people don't tend to pay a lot of attention to, but rapid-fire artillery would not have been possible were it not for hydraulic innovations and, of course, the machine gun. Most of these innovations, this is the second parallel, most of these innovations did not come from the military. So most of us alive today came of age 
heels of a generation where the military controlled all the cool technology. It came, the internet came from the military, and then the military therefore got to control the pace, decide what it wanted, and what it didn't. That doesn't happen anymore. That's also not what happened before the First World War. These were what scholars would call exogenous changes. They came from the outside in, from the civilian sector. And the military was on its heels. The military had to adapt. You read about the European armies of the late 19th, early 20th century, they would spend tons of money buying new equipment, only to find by the time they fielded the stuff, it was already antiquated, and they had to turn around and spend a huge amount of money to buy a new generation of the equipment. And the result was they kind of went to war with this mixed match melange of like old stuff and new stuff, pretty much exactly what we would have to do today. I think the third parallel is the most important though, which is that the First World War represented the first major conflict between great powers that more or less had identical armies, they had identical weapons, there was no crazy overmatch like we saw in the Gulf War or the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, these were peer or near peer competitors going toe to toe for the first time in generations, which means it was a war that followed a period of great power peace. Don't get me wrong, peace is a wonderful thing, but the downside if you're a military organization, you gotta learn, you gotta learn from something, so you're probably gonna learn from the past and they didn't have a past to learn from. So all the wars that were fought when these innovations were coming out, the Russo-Japanese War, the Crimean War, although that was even a bit outdated, uh, the Boer War, right, these just, these weren't analogous. These weren't great power on great power. The new technologies had not been fielded in mass. Everybody didn't have access to them. And so if you read the, PMA, the PME journals and the doctrinal debates, and believe me, they were fierce. I've read them. They look eerily similar to the ones you see playing out today in like the Gazette and parameters. What's the next war going to look like? Let's look at Afghanistan and see. You saw the same thing before the First World War. What's the next war going to look like in Europe? Well, let's look at the Boer War, the Russo-Japanese War. And the problem is it just it gives you this pinhole view. And so you don't have great examples to draw your new doctrine from. The result is you're going to try to get the next war right. You're probably going to come close. The doctrines that the armies of Europe went to war with in 1914 were remarkably close to being right, but they were off by just a little bit. And right, as the cliche saying goes, close only counts in hand grade, uh, horseshoes and hand grenades. Doctrinal learning is neither of those. And so closing that gap, even if it's only a small gap, even if you got it almost right, right, that's measured in lives, measured in blood and treasure lost. And so my hope is that my book can shed light on how we can close that gap as fast as possible because there's going to be a gap. And that, that's where ACT theory comes into play. Yeah, that is, that is my explanation for what I think learning from the First World War, militaries today, and the U.S. military in particular, wasn't really writing this for a general audience, uh, can hopefully pick up on, on things we could do to tighten up our own learning procedures. And, and what is that acronym? Could you tease that out a little bit? Sure. So the acronym stands for Assessment Command and Training Theory. And, well, it's not a funny story. It's a dorky story, but... For the first five years, <laughs> I'll laugh. Yeah, for the first for the first five years of the project, uh, I called it Cat Theory because I couldn't think of a better acronym for it. Because you know, it was about command and control, it was about assessment, it was about training. Those are the three major variables, and I just, for the life of me, could not come up with anything better than Cat. And it wasn't until I was presenting to some of my own PhD students before, and I told them, I this is a terrible acronym, and I don't want to go into a professional audience and call this Cat Theory. And, you know, one of my lowliest, newest PhD students is like, you know, you could just rearrange the, the letters, professor, and it says <laughs> act, which actually sounds a lot more like what you're talking about. Uh, so, again, learning. We're always learning. We always should be as organizations, individuals. I learned cat was stupid. Act is much better. The theory itself and the acronyms focus on, I think, the three core steps that any organization must engage in if it wants to change. Uh, the first is, and it doesn't actually come, uh, take a step back. 
I think the three tasks any organization, if you want to change, you're doing something that's not working. You're like, I got to update my procedures, my doctrine. Uh, you got to experiment. And the trick with experimentation, especially in an environment like combat, is you kind of want the Goldilocks level of experimentation. If you experiment too little, you're not going to get enough variation. If you don't have enough variation, you don't have enough data to really compare and contrast. If you experiment too much, well, Darwin tells us most experiments fail. And so if you're experimenting too much on the battlefield where you're going to suffer unacceptably high losses, and then you can't learn because there's just nobody left to learn from. So the first step is you got to experiment. The second is once you've experimented, you got to analyze the data that you've received. And I think, Vic, you and I remember this a lot during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, every platoon would go out there. Every platoon would try something a little bit different. Every platoon would then write something for the Gazette. And <laughs> the challenge was, you know, second lieutenant me, second lieutenant you would be like, hey, I did this thing and it worked and it was awesome. We should all do this thing. That was usually how most of the articles read. The, the problem is maybe it worked for the reasons you thought. Maybe it worked because you went up against the inept version of the enemy. Maybe it failed, actually was sound, but the enemy was just super good or the conditions weren't completely right. And so having the raw data isn't enough. And at least my take on how lessons learning worked during those wars was really Marine Corps would take in a huge amount of information and just barf it back on the frontline commanders who'd have to kind of wade through all of these reports themselves. Uh, so it would be better to analyze the information, distill it, figure out, did the things that work really work for the reasons you thought? Did the things that failed really fail for the reasons you thought? What can we generalize? And then how do we write this into a coherent doctrine that other units can learn from before they hit boots on the ground? The last step you have to engage in, the most important step, I would argue, the one that we don't talk enough about because no one's excited when they go to training command, you got to transmit the lesson. Like just like there's no point in chopping down a tree in a forest if no one's around to hear the damn thing, the best doctrine in the world is useless if no one's learned it. And actually training an army in the middle of combat is probably, I would imagine, one of the hardest things to do for any organization, full stop. Uh, so one thing in Iraq or Afghanistan, which is like a bushfire war, you can deploy units, you have the, you have the luxury of bringing units back, refitting. Uh, in a great power war against China or Russia, we're not going to have that luxury. That was the situation they faced in the First World War. So you were literally having to pull units out of combat, train them as quickly as you can. Obviously, that's kind of like taking a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. And so then you run into the problem where you might have the right doctrine, but it's poorly transmitted. So then units go to fight with it and they suck at it. And then you think your doctrine didn't work, but it wasn't that your doctrine didn't work, your training wasn't good. So I say those are the three things an organization has to do. Experiments, got to analyze, it's got to transmit. And I think, and this is where ACT comes in, organizations that are organized in a particular <laughs> way, uh, that have a particular set of attributes or characteristics are going to do this better and faster. It's not going to be perfect, but it's going to be better and faster, and war is all about your comparative advantage. And so here it is. Organizations that, when it comes to the C in ACT, which is your command practices, organizations that moderately delegate control to frontline leaders, and by moderately I mean company-grade officers, captains, lieutenants, maybe senior staff and CEOs, have the autonomy to execute mission-type orders, which means they're told you know, what they need to do but not how to do it assuming they understand the existing doctrine that gives them the latitude to experiment just a little bit. So you don't have unorchestrated chaos, but you have sufficient variation that maybe if they try something different and it works, they can report that up the chain of command. Again, if you're letting everybody do their own thing, that's chaos warfare. You're not going to learn from it. If everybody is kind of in lockstep doing the exact same thing, well, then when it fails, all you're going to know is that the existing system's not going to work. You don't know what you could try that's different. The second variable has to do with assessment. That's the A and ACT theory. And my argument is organizations that have prestigious, independent, and here's the key, rigorously trained analytic staffs, people who can take all this really incoherent frontline data from the second lieutenants, try new things, 
really rigorously distill it, analyze it. Did it work for the reasons we thought it worked? What's our new cause and effect relationship? What's our theory of victory? Right? Doctrine's all about a theory of victory. Why does it work? Staffs that exist that can do these things are going to be able to distill that, turn that into a coherent doctrine faster than organizations that don't have those staffs. And the third step is super highly centralized training command. And here, I think this pushes back on how many of us are taught to think about innovative organizations, which is decentralization is good. My theory says actually only a little bit of decentralization is good. And really, you want a ton of centralization when it comes to transmitting new lessons, because that's the only way you're going to be able to get this new doctrine out to the front lines, train them quickly. And this is huge, especially for the Marine Corps, as you're thinking about this major force redesign, overcome resistance. Because no matter what doctrine you come up with, someone's not going to like it. And you're going to have some crusty master sergeant or colonel who's going to be like, I'm not doing it. And right. so you need that ability to kind of shove it down the throats of the frontline leaders to get the new thing out there and get it out there quickly. Now, when we start to when we look at this, uh, some of the peer and near peer dynamics, and there's a couple of things I wanted to touch on too that you mentioned in your book too. But when it comes to organizations, uh, especially when we start talking peer and near peer, where uh, do something like meritocracy, vice, uh, nepotism? play into that because if it seems like if you have this cadre of folks that you have blessed off as hey here's our gatekeepers for this stuff and we're going to have a highly centralized you know like you said like force feeding of this stuff but yet they themselves are inept mm -hmm. and only were in this position because of who they knew or networking or something like that we run into problems then because then you can't unseat those guys and put in a new and like you said time is money money is lives um yep. even if you had the impetus to replace those dudes it's going to take a while which is going to mean real estate and people di dying on the battlefield right no it, it it is and i think this is a, a terrific question so obviously one thing i don't look at i don't look at non-western militaries i also don't look after 1918. uh so as we're trying to <laughs> extrapolate to today you know, I, again, I channel my inner Tom Earhart, go read Pathologies of Victory. I think I, I'm relatively confident in saying that the United States military, all of the branches and, and most of our Western allies are, are much closer to this act ideal than our most likely competitors, right? The CCP, it is a politicized military. It is not a professional military. And so I think they're going to struggle to learn, but I still don't want that to be a reason for complacency to pat ourselves on the back because maybe the gap we have to start of the war, we have to close in terms of learning. Maybe the Chinese got it closer than we did. Uh, so I, I don't want us to rest on our laurels. Of the three variables, right? I'm, when I think about the U.S. military, although I'm not 100% confident, we can talk about this, but I think more likely than not, we're, we're already moderately decentralized in how we empower frontline commanders. Not super worried about that one. The one I worry about is the exact one you talked about, which is these prestigious, independent, rigorously trained analytic staffs. Uh, you're right. If, if you have some sclerotic brain that you're really getting picked because of nepotism or because you know the right people, uh, you basically then recreate the British Expeditionary Force in 1914. And what I argue over the course of my book is the British got much better at learning in part because they really rattled this brain and kind of mixed things up. Uh, but if you compare them to the German general staff, which was the analytic brain of the German army on the Western Front, and I, I argue that the German army came closer to getting this right than anybody else, uh, you see a, an extremely rigorous meritocracy. And in fact, because the highest command positions went to the aristocracy, the only way you could get upward mobility in the German army was to go the analytic staff route, which was as close to being purely meritocratic as possible. You had to pass this crazy competitive exam. 
people who think that American PME is tough, the the war the war college lasted three years. At the end of every year, you had to take another exam, and a certain number were failed out of the course. After you finished the school, before you moved on to the general staff, you were a probationary officer, and only at the end of that five, six-year period were you then anointed a full-time member of the general staff. So it was extremely difficult to get in. It was extremely difficult to graduate from. It was as close to being meritocratic as possible. And I think that's a really essential ingredient. And it's not that I'm worried that, that our analytic staffs uh, aren't meritocratic. I guess what I'm worried about is, number one, they're not prestigious. I, I just yeah. don't think most Marine warriors come in saying, I want to go and get 15 years of graduate education. I think most realize that's a career killer. And then secondarily, I think we've outsourced a tremendous amount of our analytic capability to the private sector, to think tanks and contractors. And I think that's like giving your own organization a lobotomy because at the end of the day, the warriors on the front lines are the ones who have to pay the price for getting it wrong. So I prefer they're the ones thinking about the problem set. Man, uh, that is that, that is so, I'm, I'm salivating at that because that is such a thing is that we see the military reflecting um, the private sector in so many ways but in, in outsourcing, because quite frankly, I mean, we saw it a little bit when we were lieutenants with our caps, faps, haps, paps, you know, you got your base taxes and all these things because someone's got to hand out tiles at the gym. Somebody's got to man the front gate, and check IDs. Somebody's got to fucking mow the lawn and shit, right? So you've got all these things. And so even when you would go out to the field, even if you were at TO, you're only going at a reduced amount because you've got all these taxes, your manpower taxes that you have to pay out. So it does make sense at the lower level that, hey, if we can augment this stuff by just throwing a little cheddar cheese at it, you know, maybe we can talk about being full up TO, maybe even having a, a ready reserve within at the small unit level. But that has seemed to picked up steam and is a juggernaut across the force where, yeah, it seems like we're outsourcing a lot of what we were going to need as far as like that, like you talk about that living brain. Yeah, no, no I mean, I'm, I'm in full agreement. And one of the things I push back somewhat subtly uh, towards the end of the book. So, you know, if you actually go out and get the book, read the first chapter, read the conclusion, you'll get the gist of it. Uh, I, I really push back very hard on this idea that if you want to be innovative, dynamic, adaptive, what have you, we should copy the private sector. I think that is a fundamentally misguided notion it ignores the fact that private organizations exist for fundamentally different reasons than large public bureaucracies. And private organizations, unlike the military, are in the business of doing their business all the time. They get great feedback. Military doesn't do its job most of the time. That's a good thing. Uh, so it has to be prepared to get a lot of feedback very quickly. I, I got the sense some number of years ago there was a kind of a dominant narrative, at least in the civilian security community, that if we want DOD to be innovative, we should just grab Elon Musk, stick him in the Pentagon, shake it. <laughs> uh, but the Tony line, Stark. Yeah, as Tony Stark. School as Tesla is, uh, and Tony Stark is, uh, Tesla employees don't have to worry about getting murdered by Nissan or Toyota employees while they're building their cars. The Marine Corps <laughs> and the Army do, right? So as they're in the business of doing their business, they are literally being annihilated by the other side. And that's something the private sector doesn't know how to deal with, right? Force preservation isn't isn't on a Tesla's mantra. So I think it's just a fundamentally misguided way of thinking about innovation. I think it's leading us astray. And to your point, on right, the first time we ask officers to engage in serious doctrinal learning under fire shouldn't literally be under fire. And the best analogy I can really think comes from the Marine Corps. 
when the Marine Corps was doing its last force design in 2030, the tentative landing manual in the 1920s and 30s, uh, they literally shut Quantico down for a year and they're like, hey, you're not doing PME, you're going to write the new tentative landing manual. You're going to redesign the doctrine. And that became a very grassroots function whereby the officers who would eventually go to combat with that doctrine were the ones who were instrumental in actually writing and thinking about it and experimenting with it. And today I, I, I shudder to think that a big piece of that thinking process goes to RAN, CNA, uh, all the other organizations. These are wonderful organizations with brilliant people. I think they can augment, but I really think Marine Corps and Army officers have to be at the core of that conversation and, in fact, driving it, not borrowing from it. Nice, nice. Um, I guess getting a little bit back into the, the nuts and bolts of the book, though. So I think we've touched on it a little bit, but where did this idea, where did the seedbed for this book come from? You mentioned it was your dissertation. Like, what was it? I don't I don't want to put well, too much smoke up your ass, but at the same time, like where you being Pacific focused and China, Taiwan focused think, hey, this Western Front thing's kind of cool. Where did that come from? That so, so, so that came from two books, which I would strongly recommend. I think Earhart's Pathologies of Victory is a short article every Marine officer must read so that no one becomes too complacent. I think two books, if you're a staff officer and you really want to think about how civilian scholars and civilian analysts think about things like change and revolutions in military affairs, two books that fundamentally changed how I thought about the problem set. And this is what I wanted to study in graduate school. I watched us as Marines wrestle with the challenge of counterinsurgency. And, and you know, we struggled a bit in the beginning. I, I was part of that struggle. I wasn't very good at it. I wasn't prepared for it. I wanted to think about how to get better at it. Two books that I read in the process of thinking about the problem got me interested in the Western Front. The first is uh, Winning the Next War by Stephen Rosen. He's a, he's a Harvard professor, ended up being on my dissertation committee for this, this project. And he, in essence, writes about the bureaucratic hurdles and challenges and parochial politics that any innovative idea or any innovative leader has to face and overcome. And so I think if you want to understand a person who's never been in the military but really seems to just get why it's so hard to change these organizations and tell a very sympathetic story, not just one about, you know, self-interested fighting over rice bowls. Uh, Rosen's book really kind of opened my door to this theoretical issue. And then another book by Stephen Biddle, it's called Military Power. He writes about the birth of combined arms warfare and he makes the argument this is still the dominant way of fighting. But in telling that story, he opens the book to the Western Front and he says, hey, most of you think this came out of Blitzkrieg in the Second World War. It's not. It's, that's not what the historians tell us. It's really about the last couple of years on the Western Front. And he has this really powerful analogy. He said, if you take an officer from the British or German armies in 1914 and you drop them into 1917 or 1918, they would be lost. They would have no idea what's happening. But if you took a German or a British officer or a French officer from 1917, 1918 and dropped them into the Gulf War in 91 or the invasion of Iraq in 2003, the weapons would look, well, a little bit different. Let's be honest, our Modus and many of the other weapons we're using literally came from the First World War. Uh, Cruise missiles. The jets would go faster, the tanks would be cooler, jump farther, but fundamentally the concepts undergirding how we fought in those conflicts were completely natural to them. And that really got me to thinking that if I want to understand the next war through the lens of combined arms combat, the First World War is a place to start digging, and metaphorically. Yeah, very cool. And then, so then, what does that mean when we start to talk about uh, sea basing and X, you know, EAO, EABO, and um, you know, containment of this near peer threat. 
I mean, right, it's challenging because at the end of the day, so one of the things that I push back on with existing theories of innovation coming from the civilian scholarly world is this idea that we can explain innovation as this single phenomenon or learning as a single phenomenon through peace and war. And I think in peacetime, you come as close as you can get. And in wartime, the process of learning, adapting, changing, being flexible, it just changes because war fundamentally changes how organizations, military organizations have to operate. And so I say, I'm not going to try to explain how we think about war in peacetime. That's my book is already too long. Uh, Stephen <laughs> Rosen and others, I think, do a, a really great job of, of parsing through that problem set. And so I think a lot of the things we're wrestling with now, this is us trying to peer over the horizon, knowing we only have this tiny little pinhole of a couple of recent conflicts to learn from, to say, what do we think it's going to look like? Uh, where do we place our bets? Where do we hedge? What technologies and capabilities? Uh, and again, I, I think you know, there should be fierce debates. I think we'll probably come pretty close to getting it right. But at the end of the day, the war is not going to look exactly like we think, and it may catch us way off guard. And that's where my book picks up saying, well, wherever we are and wherever we realize we need to be, how do we close that gap? So they close that gap as quickly as possible. Yeah. yeah I, I applaud all these debates. I think the Marine Corps is really doing the right thing by having this force design 2030 debate. I don't know if it's the right answer or not, but the debate is the important piece. Uh, and I think it suggests the Marine Corps may be able to close that gap. So the learning is, is shorter. Yeah. I, I, I think about uh, one of the other previous interviews we had talked about the, the value of just asking the question even if you don't come up with the right answer, that's not where value necessarily lies. And I think you even mentioned it. Um, it was on, uh, pardon me, uh, I want to say, yeah, page 173 of your book, you have learning matters despite not guaranteeing victory. I think that was really a profound statement. Um, I think there's a lot of value in in the dialogue. Um because I like I think about like science fiction, right? We're at a we're in a period of time where the science fiction nerds of the 60s and 70s are stuff's playing out pretty close to what they had come up with. Like, yeah, Isaac Asimov maybe hadn't thought about algorithms when he came up with the book iRobot, but the theme and the narrative there is pretty damn close to sentient technology, like you said, taking over what we seem we see as being uh, inherently human, and that is the ability to think and to adapt using rational thought. Um, so yeah, I think there is a ton of value, um, like you said, in just asking the question. So I think what your book helps us do is have, I don't know, may, maybe I'm overstating it, but sort of having faith in the scaffolding mm -hmm. uh, and the skeleton of this thing, even if the muscles don't necessarily look like what we think it's going to look like at the end, right? No, I mean, that's to, 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 to paraphrase or maybe not paraphrase, but Eisenhower, uh, plans are useless, planning is everything. I very much fall into that camp, which is to say, if we have the right systems in place to think we will be able to adapt to anything, arguably, we hopefully already can do it faster than our opponents. But in my mind, because every lesson learned is, is learned in red, uh, I'd still want that gap to be as, as close as possible. And I think the scaffolding can work. I think we've got the right concepts in place, uh, but I think things like analysis and training, we can do better than we have. But, you know, I, I'll look at the Army a little bit. I think 
Tradoc is a, a shadow of its former self, or maybe not shadow, a bloated version of its former self. If you read about the army in the late 70s and early 80s, Tradoc was like the hottest place to be. It's where all the dynamic thinking was going on. This is where we get air, land, battle, and all these really interesting concepts that helped set us up for success in the Gulf War. Um, and then over time, it, you know, it's just, it's, it's done what bureaucracy's done. And so really going back and looking hard at training command or at training education command or at Tradoc and its equivalents in the Air Force and the Navy, I think it is really going to pay a lot of dividends. The thing is, you know, it's just, it's not sexy. It's, it's right. um, And so getting people to pay attention to ensure adequate funding, uh, convincing senior Marine leaders that when you send Marines off to do PhDs, that you shouldn't just stick them in a cubicle somewhere in the Pentagon and expect them just to read think tank reports, because then they're just going to go work for the think tanks for more money. <laughs> scholar warrior has some purpose and that these scholars like General Petraeus can go on to be commanders. Because I think if you eliminate that pathway to command, then really you eliminate the incentive for your best and brightest to go into the field. Um, so I think there are things that the Marine Corps could be doing better, because uh, in my mind, there's no amount of better we could do in terms of just learning as fast as we can. What are some of your thoughts then on being sort of victims of our own success then uh, in many ways, you know, depending on how you spin it? Like, I'm sure some and, and, and it's weird to say, like, I've. I've Having been in Afghanistan, I, I gained a lot of sympathy for the Russians. <laughs> um, you know, they, you know, the last plane flies out, some guy with an RPG chases it on a, on a moped and then says, say we won because I'm chasing them out of here on my moped with the RPG. And like, well, there's a lot of other things to think about. And so depending on what lens that you're looking at um, our recent, uh, you look at the U.S.'s involvement in the long war, I think there are plenty of successes that we can, one, learn from, but the other end of that coin is that we could rest our laurels on as well. And so in a meritocracy, sometimes it's hard to, and I guess going back to your quote about learning matters despite not guaranteeing victory, we tend to think, well, that worked, we won, why do I need to look internal again? Yeah, no, I, and this is exactly why I would come back to every Marine officer should read Pathologies of Victory, because I, that's his main argument, is that uh, we won for reasons unrelated to why we think we won, and then spent the next decade patting ourselves on the shoulder, running around playing, you know, whack-a-mole, for lack of a better word, against a second-rate adversary when the first-rate adversaries were salivating at the fact that we were distracting ourselves strategically. And, and they had no such hubris because they came through some long periods of humiliation. And so I, I think humility is an attribute that benefits individuals, but definitely organizations. And all things equal, I'd rather err on the side of humility. To your to your larger point um, on learning versus winning and losing, I, I think that it is very important to disaggregate the two. So you know, one of the challenges of writing my book, and I get this every time I present my research, is they're like, I make the argument. The Germans were closer to matching act theories ideal than the other two. It learned faster. And then everyone says, but they lost. And I say, but that's <laughs> not relevant because how well you learn, you know, victory has many determinants. Learning is one of them, but it's maybe not even the dominant one. I think as warriors and leaders of warriors, we want to learn so that we save lives and put ourselves in the best possible position for victory. But victory is a game of chance, right? Clausewitz tells us that. And I think there are things which can swamp effective learning on the battlefield inept political and strategic leadership being one of them. And so it doesn't matter how agile an instrument of warfare that you have, if your political and strategic leaders are making boneheaded moves, it's not going to help you. Uh, that doesn't, however, abdicate the organization from the responsibility of saying, well, did I do everything I could to put ourselves in this position for success? 
And this is where, again, my book is really not aimed at political leaders, although I think politicians should pay more attention to doctrine than they do. But really, it's aimed at mid-career staff who will someday hopefully become senior staff to recognize the one thing you can control is how fast you learn. We can be better at it, and then hopefully our politicians make good decisions. <laughs> yeah, keep our fingers crossed. Um, so speaking to that sense of like hubris uh, and that sort of that push-pull between civilian and military leadership and, and us doing our due diligence on our end regardless, where it, we and you mentioned a few times these sort of bushfires or these small wars and so we look at at hubris uh and i feel like having re you know read through your book that there was a sense that european powers as they were getting ready as they're plussing up for 1914 refused to look at the american civil war because that happened on the other side of the pond that was a completely different people in a completely different region but then when you look at it now, you're like, wow, a lot of the battlefields, especially towards the end of the Civil War, looked a lot like the battlefields of the Western Front. And no one thought to look at that because that was the American problem. As we look now at current events, there's a lot of these bushfires. There's Mali, there's Crimea, there's Georgia. What Are we running into that same problem that the European powers were? Yes, I mean, I, I think we are. And I don't even know, I don't want to say it's a silly example or an example of us making the same silly mistakes as the past. I, I don't know how much you can learn from examples which are not accurately analogous to what you're going to face. And we don't know what the future is going to be, but I think we can say it stands to reason that these small bushfires aren't going to look like it because for the most part, these are proxy wars uh, or wars against deeply asymmetric adversaries. And the fact of the matter is, if we do end up going into combat against Russia, China, or any of the other frontline states, uh, they are now equipped with weapons which are arguably as capable, in some respects, maybe more capable than the ones that we've got. And we just, we have not seen that type of conflict 70-some years. And so, you know, I think we should struggle to learn from those lessons of the past, in recent past, but we should probably be extraordinarily modest about what we can, and anybody who's saying, well, this thing happened, in a recent war where somebody used some drones and took out tanks, and tanks are therefore irrelevant, is probably, analytically speaking, overreaching. Yeah. Which is, again, why some rigorous analytic training for our analysts would be useful, so we're not just reading CNN.com and then making these very superficial arguments about what causes what. Right. Yeah, because Hamas was able to stall the Israelis for a short time doesn't mean that we need to throw out tank doctrine. Exactly. And nor am I, again, I'm, for me, I, I left the Marine Corps in 2006, everything's frozen in time, and, and I was an armor officer, so I have, of course, bias in the argument, but I'm not saying tanks are or aren't a good thing. Uh, I'm saying that should be for the officer corps to fiercely debate, but I would prefer that those debates were being had by people who had some very serious, rigorous training to the degree to which I don't think many Marine staff officers have had. Nice. Okay. Okay. Um, we talked a lot about innovation, obviously, innovation, and I heard a theory um some time ago uh that one of the things that helped uh, the blitzkrieg and uh the german uh rapid advances in world war ii was the fact that they were gutted and thus everything they were using was fairly new tech mm -hmm. um and that one of the big limitations for the allied powers was trying to do this mixed fleet of legacy and mm -hmm. modern um what 
role do you think um, proliferation played in the 1914 and 1918 period? And what does that speak to um, the act theory? Or how does that, how is that in conversation with the act theory? Yeah, so, so it is, it, it's a very important reminder uh, that the decisions you make today constrain the options you have tomorrow. It's what scholars call path dependency. And yeah, I mean, one of the unintended benefits of, of what happened in the peace negotiation and between 1918 and the beginning of the Second World War is that the German army was largely gutted, which did free it in some ways of having to pay for things and maintaining things and creating interest groups that want to keep things going. Uh, I also, and there's a big debate in the innovation literature about whether having excess resources makes you more innovative because you have more to invest or less innovative because it makes you fat and bloated. You know, the German army seems to suggest that because I always show my students the picture of the tanks that made a cardboard that they put on bicycles so they could go out to the training area because uh, it's all they had. It's all they could afford and it's all they were allowed to have. Uh, that, that, it, that having too little can make you hungry and being hungry can make you innovative and creative and thinking in unique sorts of ways. I think prior to the First World War, uh, the nice thing here is I actually don't have to wrestle with some armies that were really rich and well-funded and you know other armies that were really hungry and nimble and agile and could divest of all the old stuff and just buy new stuff. Uh, here we have armies that were really matched, very similarly equipped, really similar ways. And except for the British Army, which sized up pretty quickly, uh, they were even the same size, had the same basic organizational structure. And the benefit of doing this is that actually from a social scientific perspective, it allows me to like fix these other potential explanatory variables, things that could explain, um, so that I can really just focus on the variables I'm interested in. How did they do command and control? How did they assess mm -hmm. things? How did they train? Because on those variables or attributes, they varied pretty significantly. And so there's this historian named Williamson Murray, Williamson Murray, and he says the First World War is the closest thing to a natural experiment that we have. It works really well in my case because it controls for a lot of these other potential explanations, one of which being how much old junk did they have to go to war with? And the answer was they all had to go to war with a ton of old junk. They placed slightly different bets. The French had a ton of light artillery. That was the new sexy stuff everybody thought they needed to have. Turns out it was completely ineffective in trench warfare, and they had to get rid of it. Uh, the Germans had relatively more heavy artillery, but again, for the most part, they had to kind of go to war with the armies they had, not the armies they wished they had. And then it became this really fast struggle to learn and to invest in new technology, which was its own kind of beast to wrestle with. Yeah. So then what does that speak to? So we see a lot um, in recent times of uh, propaganda, not necessarily speaking truth to power. Um, so in a case of 1914, where it looked like looking back on paper, everybody was pretty equal. They sized up, you know, it was three heavyweights, all of them with the same reach, all of them with the same, you know, trainer, all of them with the same, uh, you know, height, weight, diet sort of thing. And now we look at current, the current dynamic where you've got one that mm -hmm. seems to want to advertise a capability that is questionable. Um, you know, I think about the Chinese uh, video that was put out that turned out it was just like cut from a Top Gun <laughs> a movie. So it was like a cockpit, a HUD cockpit video. It was like, you know, it's like Maverick and Goose, actually. Um, what it, what are we looking at when we when we try to um, overlay the 1914 dynamic onto the current era as far as uh, tech and you know being the the I guess the 
the the authenticity of this being a near peer uh, battle royale. Yeah, no, I think you raise a, I think super important point, which is the first world war is useful for my purposes for two reasons. One is a social scientist who's trying to say, look, the variables I say matter matter, and they matter for the reasons I say they do. It gives me this this natural controllability, which is just super useful, but probably not too interesting to most Marine staff officers. You kind of like. Show me the baby, don't tell me about the labor pain. So the methodological <laughs> piece is the labor pain for me uh, in thinking through, do I really know what I think I know? Is my argument sound? The other benefit, I think, is it's very potent reminder that because of these parallels, uh, we are probably more likely to have to engage in a period of rapid learning when the war fighting starts uh, than we probably think we are. Now, that said, I do think we have to be very careful about not reading too much into what I'm arguing about what the next war is going to look like. I say at the very end, I, let's not, I think there are reasons to think this thing could bog down into a strategic stalemate, but I'm not saying we're going to have like trenches dug across the Western Pacific. That would be idiotic. And so we should be careful in drawing too many analogies and we should be careful in assuming too much. I'm not trying to argue that, you know, China and Russia and the United States are equally matched in the way that the German and French armies and later the British armies were. That's very much not the case. I do, however, think we have to be careful uh, kind of going for a Goldilocks solution. Let's not uh, let's not imagine our adversaries to be 10 feet tall. They've got tons of weaknesses and vulnerabilities. The more we stare at our own problems, the less we're able to look at theirs, which is what we should be doing as competitors. Uh, by the same token, though, we shouldn't overstate, oh, look, they came up with a city, silly video they totally ripped off from Top Gun. They suck. Because the bottom line is they have many capabilities that we thought we had an exclusive monopoly over for many, many years. Mm -hmm. Nice. Never yeah. And I, I point heavily to the anti-access stuff. Yeah, yeah. I've written about this in other formats, especially in the Baltic region, and I always get this pushback where they say, hey, you're overstating what the Russians could do with their long-range weapons. They don't have as many of them. Complex long-range strike means they're going to miss things. Look, they, they, they tried to shoot a few missiles uh, once in the Middle East into Syria, and they hit like Iran. Uh, they're no good. I'm like, fair enough, but the point of anti-access isn't that they're going to create this iron bubble that no one can get through. The point is, number one, from a perspective of extended deterrence, can they inflict enough pain on the United States that U.S. allies worry the United States might not show up in a crisis, right? Because that gives Russia tremendous political bargaining when the crisis mm. is erupting. And the second is, can they impose enough casualty and loss that we cannot reinforce and project power deeply enough to meet our military objectives? And this is where actually the First World War is very interesting. Most of us, when we see movies about the First World War, you see everyone jumping out, going over the top, and getting mowed down by machine guns. They never make it to the other <laughs> side. And we're like, oh, it was so futile. We were seizing, well, we, none of us were there. Uh, the, the armies were seizing one another's trenches with great regularity. Almost every offensive penetrated into the other side. They took the lines. So there was no ironclad bubble keeping them out of the opposing side's trenches. The problem was they suffered such grievous losses that by the time they got there, they had to stop, reconstitute, reorganize, and then reattack, and that gave the defender ample time to move reserves into place to block so that the break-in never became a break-out and a break-through. Mm. And I think there, anti-access does present us with a problem. Number one, of potentially deterring us or thinking, making our allies think we could be deterred. And then number two, in making it difficult when we have made some initial gains of then reinforcing those gains and then capitalizing on them so that we make a gain there, and then pretty soon we're just getting rolled back ourselves. Nice. Oh, yeah, that's huge. And that I think every logistician just started stood up and applauded right now. <laughs> I, 
again, logistics, <laughs> logistics is for professionals. That's right. That's right. No, that's, that's so good. That's so good. Well, um, I know we're coming to the end of our time a little bit. I know you got a lot on your plate. Um, and this has been so great, but I do uh, want to shift gears a little bit and just talk, have you talk a little bit on a personal level about professional development. PME obviously has been very important to you. You're still in the game um, at, you know, at a much higher level, uh, but something that obviously has a tremendous amount of influence for our listeners and for the Marine Corps, uh, the DOD, uh, and you know, strategic um applications so uh what a, have you always had a natural inclination towards learning i, I mean I, I think so and i think i mean obviously i my father was a teacher my mother was a teacher so you know learning and education were a part of my upbringing but i think the marine corps early on really reinforced when i wanted to join the marine corps i wanted to join for most of the reasons most of us wanted to join and i certainly did not think of it as a learning institution and I was, I was really surprised I get to the basic school and the first thing they do is make me take a writing test. And I realized very quickly that learning is just baked into what a professional officer needed to do. And like many second tense, I probably spent more time drinking than reading. That's probably not <laughs> appropriate balance. I learned my lesson. Probably did them at the right. same time though, right? <laughs> well, that's probably why it took me nine years at Princeton. But the, <laughs> the fact of the matter is, I, it really did strike me the degree to which learning was so important, which I think is why I was so uh, devastated when I found out the Marine Corps wasn't going to let me go pursue civilian graduate education for a couple of years. Uh, so I think that learning and that interest in learning came early on, certainly, but the Marine Corps reinforced it and really made me realize that part of being a warrior or somebody who thinks about security issues is somebody who's willing to constantly re-engage with their existing biases, preferences, and then willing to kind of challenge those and think about new things. Well, now that you've stepped away uh, from, you've been out of uniform for a minute now, what were your thoughts then while you were in that seat as, you, as a course supervisor at the uh, amphibious um, officer course? So I, I, you know, yeah, I like it. Well, number one, I like that you said that I have a position of influence. I, I'm in academia. I'm basically in the wilderness yelling to myself. Uh, you and four <laughs> other people have ever read my book, and three of them are my family, and they haven't opened it. The the other thing is that you said I've been out of the Marine Corps a minute. I'm glad we're calling two decades a minute. Uh, thinking back in my time working at training command, training new officers, obviously I was on the training side of things versus the education side of things, really making sure they, they knew their tactics, techniques, and procedures, ironically for amphibious warfare before sending them immediately downrange to Iraq to do the opposite. Uh, I think the challenge there is I started to realize that I think in some ways I have to be careful, it's the Marine Corps Gazette, and certainly the listening audience. At least back then, a PME had become a bit sclerotic and it had somewhat become, you know, check in the box, you know, oh, I got to go to EWS. And so I see all my peers heading off to EWS and they really weren't excited about it. I don't think most of them found it challenging. Uh, if I can convey, maybe this stays on the other side of the, the paywall, but I have heard <laughs> at least one senior academic who teaches at a very prestigious military PME school saying this person was really shocked. They thought of PME as being one thing when they get there. It really was just about a bunch of combat veterans coming around, trading war stories for nine months, getting a master's degree, and then leaving. And that, that, that not necessarily being what PME was designed to do, certainly not what the German model was at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and so, you know, in some respects, seeing the civilian side, how we do things, and then looking back at my PME experiences and listening to my peers who stayed in and their PME experiences, you know, I, I think there's a, a fair amount of cross-pollinization that could occur that could benefit the military, but also the civilian world. Okay. And no, that's fair. And um, 
I mean, you know, we're we're dedicated to uh, professional development, and which means taking a hard look, uh, oftentimes, as you know, we've been speaking about with the with this book, and then you know, with your experiences as well. Um, what what would you what would you offer as uh, I I don't want to say a quick fix because obviously institutional change is anything but quick, but what what kind of carrot could we dangle? in the short term to maybe jumpstart uh, our professional development into something that reflects a more scholarly um, ethos than a echo chamber for combat vets? So, I mean, I would offer three very humble suggestions. The first is I really believe the Marine Corps needs to do more civilian graduate education. I, I understand the paranoia of there's not enough fat on the bone to be able to afford to send these people off. But I've seen what a lot of Marine officers do or sent to do with their time. I think there are a lot of things that could be outsourced and that should, a lot of things could be handled by others so as to free enough Marines to go to do civilian education. I'm not saying to replace PME. PME is invaluable because it instills the doctrine and the training elements, which are essential, but sending officers and not punishing them for their careers to do so. Uh, one of the things that's really struck me in my time at Princeton and at George Mason University are just the insane number of opportunities that the army offers its officers to go do funded graduate education and for really not only not to hurt their careers but many of them this is kind of puts them on the the track to do some really cool and interesting things and i know i came up in the marine corps somebody who's always looking down on the army but i would say in that regard the army is a generation ahead of the marine corps uh it's had phd programs graduate programs you could throw a stick at and these are big incentives for their officers and i have a ton of their officers in my graduate classes at the char school and they're stellar, they're sharp, they're there to learn. Uh, and I think when I talk to them, I at least know one who turned down a billet at SAMS after having finished command and staff college uh, because of that person's experiences, not really kind of wanting to get the routinized check in the box and really appreciating what we were doing at the Shar School as opening this person's eyes to things they knew they wouldn't get at SAMS. So number one, creating those opportunities. I think number two, for those who pursue analytic careers, whether through civilian side or PME side, like stop killing their careers. You gotta make sure they can check in the boxes or just change what those boxes are so they are commensurate. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you look at the Second World War, some of our senior most commanders, they didn't check the boxes that the Marine Corps today says you have to check to be a commander. And I think we will get more effective commanders to the degree we begin cross-pollinating, some going through the PME system and some coming out uh, to the civilian world. The third thing, I, and I don't know how feasible this is, I have no background in manpower, uh, but I think taking a very hard look at what sort of doctrinal analytic requirements are being outsourced to contractors and reshoring some of those things. And again, yeah, it's gonna put a lot of pull on Marine officers, but I, I really believe the first time they engage in doctrinal analysis should not be under fire. And so the, the fact that they have literally just gotten muscle memory from doing this for themselves, really thinking about what's the future of warfare, it makes sure they're invested in the new doctrine, it gives them say in the new doctrine, and I think, you know, again, plans are worthless, planning is everything, it puts them in that right mental state, so when they're doing this with bullets flying, they're doing a better job than they would if we relied on Brookings, CNAS, and everybody else to do it for us. No, that's that's great insight, and I mean, we're at a, we're at a point, and again, like, I, I'm not speaking from a manpower standpoint at all, but it seems to me, world according to Vic, that we are at a point where we can start to look at some of these more um, holistic approaches because we're not in that model where uh, major subordinate commands only have one field grade officer because everybody is somewhere trying not to die. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so, yeah, we do. We're not fat by any stretch of the imagination, but we are fatter. We're healthier than we've been. And people are in garrison for a lot longer uh, doing the things they're supposed to do, according to their billet description. But maybe the thing to your point is maybe part of their billet description should be going outside of the Marine Corps PME system and trying to see things through different lenses or a more expansive um, sort of approach. So, man, I really appreciate your time, dude. This is great. Um, like you said, it has, I'll, I'll use the term again, it's been a minute since you were in, but if you could, could you close us out with maybe um, your memories of your uh, favorite day in the Marine Corps? So uh, I'm going to channel my inner politician by not quite answering the question that you've asked, because I have many favorite days in the Marine Corps, most of which are not appropriate for a, a podcast, even behind a paywall. Uh, so let me just go with a, my favorite, a long-term phase in the Marine Corps, and it, and it has to be you know, our time together on the unit deployment program to Okinawa early 2002. Again, it was just a very unique time, I think, in the Marine Corps' history. There's this blip. 9-11 had happened, so we took the world, I think, a lot more seriously than we did before 9-11. I could say that having been in the Marine Corps like 18 months uh, prior to that event. But the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan hadn't really cooked off yet. And so it was this just really fascinating time. In some ways, I, I have to believe, because I've spent so much time reading about the first world war, it must have been what it was like to be an officer in like July of 1914. You see the storm clouds gathering, you know everything's going to change, but you're kind of on your last exercise in the old world. And we had a great time together. We had a great CO, a great staff, a, a group of staff and COs, and tremendous amount of learning, tremendous amount of bonding. And I think that's the greatest part, especially for a West Coast Marine. We all know we don't bond as much as East Coast Marines because we live in a much better place and we have other things <laughs> to be doing. Uh, we're not trapped together, but at Camp Schwab, like we were together and I think we really got to know each other. And, you know, those are the bonds that really at the end of the day, you forget everything else and that's what you remember. Hollywood Marines, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, man, I really appreciate your time. This is fantastic. What's uh, what's next for you? What's uh, what's on the horizon? Well, I, uh, I, I, I go up for tenure, and so I will soon find out my fate in the academic world. But in the meantime, I am working on a year-long project that's really trying to assess kind of the potential implications of a war over Taiwan. So nothing but bright, cheery work for me in the next couple of months. Well, let's, let's, let's plan on having you back, uh, especially with you being just right up the road at uh, George Mason. Um, once that... Uh, once you do your album drop, man, let's get you back on and talk about that a little bit. Would would love to do it, and you know, regardless of, of when I'm able to come back on, please make sure you share with all the listeners that I'm I'm literally just up the road at George Mason University, and always eager to talk to active duty officers who are thinking either about transitioning or doing active duty graduate programs. And I will always give the unvarnished truth, as hopefully I have at least my perception of the unvarnished truth on this podcast. Uh, but you know give people the relative pros and cons of graduate education and various programs without putting the hard sell on George Mason University, which I still think is the best out there. What about, uh, you guys have a MESEP, you guys are MESEP, right? So enlisted folks could potentially jump on board with that as, as well? I, I actually believe right now we only have Naval or uh, Army ROTC, ironically, even though we're the largest university in Virginia, uh, but we have a ton, we have a ton of prior service uh, Marines who come through our classrooms. I, it okay. is a great school to go to for veterans, but also for active duty officers. I, I think it is the type of environment where you will not feel out of place, and yet at the same time, you will find that your world, worldview is being challenged. And that's exactly what I think you should be aspiring to. Nice. That is great. And uh, you, you have undergrad classes, right? 
Oh yeah, I, te- I teach undergrads. I teach masters. Oh, students. so if you like this podcast, yeah. And if you don't like this podcast, you will have four months or what, fourteen weeks of it, baby. Yeah, yeah. And if you don't like this podcast, please, please, for the love of God, don't sign. Still do it. Podcast. It's still good. It's still a good opportunity. <laughs> All right, man. Well, it's been awesome to uh, sit down with you for a while. Uh, I wish we would do this more. Uh, obviously, not without you know without a microphone or whatever, but. Uh, <laughs> Once, uh, hopefully, there's no epsilon variant, and uh, we'll be able to actually go catch a beer or something sometime soon. Cannot, cannot wait for it. All right, man. Thanks again for your time. Of course, man. Take care. Have a great day. You too. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am Nick Wilson. That is Major Vic Rubel, U.S. Marine Corps retired. You have also heard the voices of or contributions from William Truding or Nancy Lichman, editors of Gazette and Leatherneck Magazines, respectively. Opinions expressed in Scottlebutt are just that, opinions, and do not represent any official stance of the MCA.